Welcome to the latest and my personal final episode of The Warden Current. My name is Thomas Obermeyer, and today my co-host Ellie McDonald and I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Cody Finke, CEO and co-founder of Brimstone, a startup pursuing carbon-negative, ordinary Portland cement. As Cody will explain, cement is one of those hard-to-decarbonize industries that has received little attention to date, despite contributing about 5.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions approximately the same as all cars on the road today. In this episode, we discuss his pursuit throughout his PhD program to identify the most relevant problem to tackle that could have a meaningful impact at scale, how that led him to founding Brimstone in 2019 with co-founder Hugo Leandri, the existing cement and concrete ecosystem that appears uninterested in pursuing decarbonization, and why he is confident that a lower cost solution, not for example CCS, is the only feasible pathway for the industry. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. And without further ado, let's jump right in. Cody, thank you for joining us on what is probably the last episode of this academic year of the Wharton Current. We're really excited to have you. Before we jump into the cement industry and what Brimstone is, could you give us an overview of your background and what led you to founding the company in 2019? Yeah, Thomas and, and, and Ellie, thanks for having me. And yes, I absolutely can. My academic background is I'm a chemist by training. I got an undergraduate degree in chemistry, and then I got a PhD in environmental science and engineering. And through my PhD, I looked at various industrial processes and trying to figure out how to do them in ways that are more environmentally friendly, typically lower CO2 emissions. So a little more detail on that. Toward the end of my undergraduate degree, I wanted to work on something that was of some use to humanity. I had done quite a bit of traveling at that point, traveled to India and Zambia and Botswana and a few, few low-income countries and, you know, just compared the resources that I had access to just because of where I was born and, 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 and the family that I was born into with, uh, resources that, you know, most folks around the world have access to. And I just realized that the world is a really, really unfair place and, you know, any amount of money that I could make in the United States was, you know, quite literally a lot of money. I think that the global average income is probably going to misquote this, but it's, it's something like $10,000 a year. I wanted to work on some sort of problem that was impactful to lots different, to, you know, humans and, and, and other living things. At that point, I sort of like, well, maybe I could be a chemistry professor and, and just try to solve chemistry problems to make widgets basically that could, you know, increase equality. I was interested in lots of different things, uh, you know, HIV medication to clean energy. I was also somewhat concerned about my own personal job security at that point, because I knew it was quite hard to become a professor. So I thought like, you know, what was sort of aligned with that is maybe a physician, you know, job security is a lot better as a doctor and maybe I could work at public health or something that had some utility for the more global issues. and. I, so I applied to and, and into some MD, PhD, dual de degree programs and ended up going to an MD, PhD, dual degree program, which I hated. I felt as a medical student, I felt like totally replaceable. And I think the biggest, the biggest reason I felt replaceable is I was just looking at the statistics. I was like, wow. So I, th I think it's only 40% of people who apply to medical school, get in to medical school, which means that if I wasn't going to medical school, someone else who is just as good as me would have been going to medical school. And I was like, this, I, this is just such a replaceable career. You know, there certainly are routes you could take that are not so replaceable, but I just didn't feel like I had the ability to do that or the, uh, the capacity to do that or the 
creativity to figure out what that route would be. So I, I dropped out of the MD portion after, I don't know, 10 weeks or something. And I went to the, just start, I uh, kept with the PhD. I took that phrase, like, okay, I really did not like the feeling of being so replaceable. Let me do something that is just kind of weird, but also quite impactful. And I started working on wastewater treatment for applications in low-income countries. You know, something like 2 billion people in this world don't even access, have access to, to clean water. And, you know, there's huge problems with sanitation, both for humans and non-human things. And there's also huge greenhouse gas emissions associated with, with sanitation, especially with very powerful greenhouse gas. So I was very interested in that. And I worked on that for, you know, really my entire PhD, but, you know, only that for maybe the first two or three years of my PhD. At that point, I'd become quite convinced that if I wanted to really make an impact, then I ought to start a company because someone had to pay for it. And starting a company was a, a, a good way to get people to pay for folks, you know, make it a more attractive solution. So I did something called a techno-economic analysis where you analyze economics of the uh, technology that you're working on, trying to figure out how much it would cost if it was a commercial product at scale. And I, I was not very enthusiastic about the results. It, it was a, a, just really bad. Like I just it didn't, it just seemed like, you know, the technology that I was working on, it was just a, a really poor solution for the problem. So I decided I wouldn't focus my time on that anymore. And I started working on making hydrogen basically. And I saw hydrogen as a commodity chemical, you know, that's what it's used for today. I didn't really see any feasibility in these new markets. I, I just couldn't figure out how to get the economics to align with CO2 emissions. So I started working on that for via water electrolysis, figured out that, you know, did another techno-economic analysis after, you know, a year or two more work and found that water electrolysis too had really, really challenging economics. And it was, you know, too, it was too challenging for what I felt like I was capable of, of doing. So I, you know, stopped doing water electrolysis because the conclusion I came to was like, in any way that I, I, I was able to think of the problem, if, you know, there may be people who could solve it, but anyway, that I, I was able to think of the problem, it would always be cheaper to use fossil fuels in some way. And if that's the case, then it's probably more CO2 intensive than, you know, just making hydrogen directly from fossil fuels, which is a pretty CO2 intensive process. And then I, you know, just couldn't get the, the, the economics to align with the CO2 emissions goals. I sort of made a resolution to say, hey, I'm not going to spend my time as a scientist thinking of a process for, you know, years before I look at the economics. So I came up with several, well, first of all, I guess I should say that I had some inspiration. So I listened to a talk by a, a man named Dave Danielson, who is the, now the managing director of Breakthrough Energy Ventures, who's one of our investors. And he, he came, he came to Caltech where I was getting my PhD. And he gave a talk, I think it was called White Spaces in, in, in Climate. And he basically told us like, hey, I'm, I'm an investor, I've worked at RB. We've been looking at a lot of technologies and really no one's, no one's working on steel, cement, aluminum. These are really big problems. And he said fertilizer too. And, you know, these are places where you could really have some impact. So I, I really like that idea because like, okay, I could, I could be useful here because there just aren't other people doing it. I, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be replaceable. And I started having some ideas for some, you know, processes that could make these materials cheaper than they're conventionally made, but also without the CO2 emissions. And ultimately I looked at all the economics and, and cement is what came out on top in the final analysis. So I, you know, founded this company Brimstone with another, the guy from Caltech, Hugo, who was working in the same lab, who was actually also working on wastewater treatment at the same time. Um, he was a, a staff scientist in the lab and, and I just really admired his, his work ethic and his creativity. 
And we took this, you know, this sort of process that I had invent, invented the skeleton of and out of the company, it was just us for a while. And then we got some money from RPE, which is, you know, branch from the federal government, which gives, gives money out. And then with that money, we developed a bit more and then pitched to a few venture capitalists and got some VC money and then recently got even some more VC money. So, yep, yeah, basically. Cody, we completely hear you on the importance of solving kind of the underhyped problems out there. We've been seeing that a lot with, you know, mass timber becoming more popular as a replacement for steel and certainly with the importance of cement being uh, lower emission. So would you walk our listeners through what the cement industry looks like now, some of the issues regarding current cement processes and how they aren't really environmentally sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to talk about greenhouse gas emissions. When I talk, and I just want to be clear because people often use greenhouse gas emissions and CO2 emissions and carbon emissions all interchangeably. So there's lots of different greenhouse gases emitted anthropogenically, you know, by humans. And you, you, you can measure their global warming potential, right? So like how big of a radiative forcing, that may be jargon, but you know, how, how much energy is basically trapped in the atmosphere and how much global warming these things cause. And you can convert all the greenhouse gases into CO2 equivalent. So when you do that, CO2 is about seven, 75% of greenhouse gas emissions in CO2 equivalent. So people often cite like 8% of CO2 emissions or 7.5% of CO2 emissions. To me, that's sort of a meaningless number because the you know, greenhouse gas emissions is what's the problem. So I always talk about five and a half percent of greenhouse gas emissions. So I may say numbers that people are like, wait, that seems lower than I expected, but just, you know, just want to put that caveats. So cement is responsible for about five and a half percent of greenhouse gas emissions. It's pretty similar to cars. Cars are about six and a half percent of greenhouse gas emissions. And cement's a little bit of an interesting story because most of its CO2 emissions have nothing to do with fossil fuel. So it's not really an energy problem, which is what most greenhouse gas emissions are. They're an energy problem. Um, so cement today is made from a rock called limestone. Limestone has the chemical formula calcium carbonate. So if you look at the chemistry at CaCO3, there's a CO2 that you could like pull out of that chemical formula. And that's because there is actually CO2 in the rock. So if you heat up limestone to a high enough temperature, it will decompose into calcium oxide which we call lime. That's what I call limestone lime because you get lime from it and carbon dioxide. And that's exactly what we do to make cement. We start with limestone and we heat it up to um, about a thousand degrees Celsius and it rapidly decomposes to form lime and CO2. About 60% of the CO2 emissions from the cement process come from the rock itself. Right? And the other 40% come from burning a fossil fuel in order to generate that heat. And this is why it's one of the reasons why it's such an interesting problem to me is because it was fundamentally a chemistry problem and I trained as a chemist and I, I like chemistry problems. And it was so interesting to try to think about how you could just eliminate that CO2 that comes from the rock. An important way to say this, I think, for clarity is in cement, even if we used 100% clean energy, but 60% of the CO2 emissions would persist. And that's you know, the core of the problem. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit further just to explain the whole industry. So cement, of course, is the binder in concrete. You mix cement with sand and gravel and water, and it makes concrete, which is the building material. And then there's also one other component to actually make cement. You have to mix 
ordinary Portland cement, which is what comes out of a cement plant with another material called supplementary cementitious materials. And supplementary cementitious materials are the waste product from burning coal, basically. So either, you know, burning coal to make electricity in a coal-fired power plant, that would be fly ash. That's a supplementary cementitious material. Or burning coal in a basic oxygen furnace or a blast furnace for primary steel production. That would be slag. And yeah, so so just to go over that in details, uh, ordinary Portland cement comes out of a cement plant that's mixed with supplementary cementitious materials to make cement. And... And that's mixed with sand, gravel, and water to make concrete. The cement industry, so there's about four or five billion tons of cement, that's billion with a B, produced every year. And it's roughly 10% of concrete, sometimes a bit more, but let's call it 10 for easy math. So that means that 40 or 50 billion tons of concrete are produced every year. It makes concrete the most consumed human-made material on the planet. Sometimes it's misquoted that cement is that. Cement is not that, but concrete is. And cement, the cement industry is fairly interesting from a you know, business perspective, because it's pretty consolidated. Look these numbers up because I'm probably going to get them wrong, but I think it's like six companies control like 60% of the global cement market outside of China. And then if you add, you know, the two biggest Chinese cement companies, which make half of the world's cement, then that number, it looks even more consolidated. So it's a pretty consolidated industry. Scale is really important in the cement industry. So like with any chemical reactor, getting bigger makes it cheaper. And the cement industry, you know, like every other industry has realized this. So they make enormous plants. I think that, you know, a typical new build cement plant will be bigger than 1 million tons per year of cement. Depending on where it's made, it'll cost on order half a billion dollars to build. So as you can see, it's a, it's a fairly tricky thing for a, a, a startup to get going into. But these are, these are some of the challenges we face. Yeah, I think the proportions of cement specifically and where emissions come from are so interesting. We had on a recent podcast, John O'Donnell, the founder of Rondo Energy and also a breakthrough portfolio company who's looking at the, the thermal heat side of it. And for most heavy industries, that's the key component, but cement just stands out like that. Continuing on the last point you made in the business side of the cement industry. So you have the supply side that's pretty consolidated. What does the offtake side look like and who are the key stakeholders? Yeah, it get it gets pretty complicated. Um, I'll try to I'll try to break it down. So, to be clear, concrete companies are basically the only offtakers of cement, except for in in some cases the departments of transportation, like governments, will directly buy some cement. So, if you're a cement plant, basically you're going to sell cement to you know between five and a hundred different concrete companies. And oftentimes, you also if you're a cement company, you also own those concrete companies. So. It's pretty easy to do business and you know, it adds more complexity. So then the customers of concrete companies are hyper-local and very diverse, right? So you can imagine a, a cement plant makes a million, let's call it a million tons of cement per year. <laughs> a mid-rise building, you know, might consume 5,000 <laughs> tons of, of cement. So it's a lot of mid-rise buildings that you can build from a single cement plant. So those, you know, that's basically maybe a 300 mile radius, like all of the construction in a 300 mile radius um, from a single cement plant. And that's servicing a lot of different concrete plants. And then the customers of the concrete are, you know, <laughs> very, very diversified. So the person, the person who ultimately pays for it is typically the, you know, not always like this, but it's typically the actual contractor who puts the concrete into the ground, who casts in place the concrete. And that contractor will be hired by 
or there will be a subcontractor hired by a general contractor um, to build a building, which was designed by an architect and the materials were maybe specified by a structural engineer and everything is ultimately paid for by a real estate developer. So let's say you're a real estate developer who wants zero carbon cement. Well, you've actually never bought cement in your life. You've, you know, paid a structural engineer and an architect to tell you what type of concrete you need. And then you've told a contractor to hire a subcontractor to tell a concrete company what concrete mix designs you need. And then that concrete company bought cement from a cement plant. So, you know, the, the actual customer who really wants the zero carbon product is pretty far from the actual cement production. So if I'm hearing you right, we are only going to see demand for green cement in three manners. One, a large grassroots movement from buyers, which seems unlikely. Uh, two, some sort of regulation, legislation, or building code changes that force people to buy lower emission cement. Or three, you know, the greener cement needs to become the best economic option, which I think leads us into the next question. What are the ways to make concrete and cement greener? Yeah, so I totally agree with you, Ellie. And in fact, I would take it even further. And I would say the only way to actually decarbonize cement is to make a lower cost product. The reason I would say that is because it's a combination of, of time that's required and practicality. So we know from history that in general, lower cost processes become the standard process. I don't know any example of a higher cost process that has been adopted because why would people want to pay more for something when they can pay less for it? That just seems better. It was the same, you know, it's the same thing. So even with cost being a driver, it's global transitions are really, really slow. I mean, you don't, you don't have to look too far back in history. Like look at, look at solar, for example, or electric vehicles, you know, GM was selling the EV1 and 1998, Tesla was founded in 2001, I think. That might be off by a few years. And we're now 20 years later at 1% of global vehicles or electric vehicles, right? The same with solar energy. I think it's something like 11% of global energy is what renewables are. And solar is maybe half of that, right? And solar was invented in the 70s. And first solar was maybe started in, I think, 1999. First solar started. So we can call it you know, 20 years, yeah, we're talking about global energy transition. It's, you know, it's no faster than previous ones, right? It's, it, these things always take 50 to a hundred years. So if it takes 50 or hundred years to do something that doesn't need regulation, so it's just lower cost, right? Then imagine how long things would take if you needed all of the world's governments to pass a law that, you know, you have to buy this, especially with that law is CO2. You know, what I think about is other types of pollution, like socks and NOx. These are air pollutants that cause smog. And, you know, we know how to stop them. Like in the United States, we have, have the Clean Air Act. We have passed regulation that has stopped smog. We don't really have smog in the United States anymore. So air quality is great. If you ever go to, you know, if you go to a country like, you know, Pakistan or India or, or, or something like that, you know, you can see smog and it's really bad, right? So we know how to solve this problem and it's a very fast solution. We could pass a law and within a year, we could probably clean up smog. But we don't in low-income countries and we don't because it's expensive. Whereas CO2, it doesn't have an immediate benefit like cleaning up smog does, and it's expensive. It's like, why would we pass laws in 
you know, what, if, if we can't do that, why, why would we expect that, that we'd be able to do CO2? I don't think that we would. Like, in my home state of Washington, there is a, you know, a state, a state that deeply cares about CO2 emissions. There is a $15 a ton tax on carbon a couple of years ago that I voted on. It did not pass. <laughs> we can't pass that in Washington state. I don't think we can pass it in, in Maine. So anyway, I would say that it is, that, that it is necessary to be cheaper. That's my very long minute way of saying that it's necessary to be cheaper. In that case, you have to, you know, be rigorous with your, you know, sort of engineering analysis and say, okay, does, does my solution have a chance of being cheaper? And I think that in my view, that eliminates carbon capture and, and sequestration in general, right? So there are some clever ways to do it. Like, you know, folks like Carbon Care are doing carbon capture and sequestration in a way that, you know, increases the strength and decreases the net need for cement. So that adds value. But just, you know, typical retrofit a cement plant or install something on a cement plant that makes a stream of pure CO2 and then, you know, pipe that off into Iceland or whatever, that only adds cost. So I think that's, you know, it could decarbonize cement in theory, but lots of things can do things in theory. You know, bikes can decarbonize transit in theory, but that technology has been around for a while. I, I don't think that carbon capture and sequestration is going to solve the cement problem. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting companies that are making alternative materials. So instead of using cement, you use something else. <laughs> and that other thing might be zero carbon. And I personally think that that's great, right? I think that's like, you know, let's, let's do that as much as we can, especially ones that are fast, right? Like you mentioned mass timber earlier. Let's do as much mass timber as possible because we can do it right now, you know, <laughs> or let's build stuff out of stone. Like we built castles in the medieval times, you know, I'm making that up, but <laughs> you know, whatever it is, let's do those things that we can do right now. And those alternative materials. In my view, for most applications or most structural applications where like this, the cement has to hold something up, it's very hard to use a new material because first of all, there's, you know, regulation doesn't allow it. Even if regulation did allow it, people wouldn't be comfortable doing it because people's lives are at risk. So we need to use the same material. So basically then we need to figure out how to make the same material that is both cheaper and doesn't involve, you know, methods of carbon capture sequestration that, that, that only add costs and don't add value besides the CO2. And that's, you know, where our solution, I believe, comes in. So basically what we did is we figured out that, yeah, there's CO2 in the rock where they make cement. So we said, okay, well, we need to find a rock that also has lime in it, also has calcium oxide in it, but does not have CO2. And so we did that and it's very common. It's called calcium silicate. Most people have heard of basalt. That is a calcium silicate. There are many more. And we invented a chemical process that can extract the calcium from the calcium silicate so we can make Portland cement without any process emissions. And then we also extract as a waste product, magnesium from these rocks. That's just a necessary part of our process. There's, you know, basically there's no way we couldn't do that. How we designed our process and that magnesium product, so it's a waste product and it passively absorbs CO2. So it would just sit in our tailings pile, reacting with CO2 in the atmosphere, turning that into magnesium carbonate, which is permanently sequestered CO2, which means even if we were to use a fossil fuel to power a process, it would sequester that CO2, you know, we could sequester that CO2 and net over the lifetime would be carbon negative, uh, which is really exciting to us. And then the final part is, okay, that's great. We made this process, make cement be carbon negative, even in the context of the fossil fuel, how can it be cheaper? And, you know, the simple answer is, well, we need something that adds value. And the thing that is most scarce and hard to come by right now in the cement industry is supplementary cementitious materials because they're a byproduct of burning coal. 
And guess what? Someone figured out that it's cheaper to make electricity from natural gas than it is from coal because it's like twice as efficient via a combined cycle natural gas power plant. So coal, yeah, waste from coal is drying up. It has been for a long time. And, and we can make fly ash as a byproduct of our process too, but we don't make it from burning coal. We make it directly from this calcium silicate rock. We make it from the silica fraction of this rock. And by doing that, we simplify the market quite a bit. So if you're a cement company that uses our, then you could save a lot of money by making your own fly ash and your own cement. And that's how it could be cheaper. When you say cheaper, trying to give everyone who's not as plugged into this industry a little bit of a point to measure against, what does the traditional process cost? And what are you guys either at or hoping to be at, if you're willing to share that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with where we're at. So, you know, we've raised about $60 million and we've made, you know, several kilograms of cement. So we're probably around a billion dollars a ton right now. So not so good, but luckily we're not trying to, we're not manufacturing it. We're just the lab scale because a, a conventional ton of cement, I think the average selling price is about $124 per ton delivered. Now, when I say cheaper, that's a very simplified thing, right? So, so let's talk about what, what goes into that selling price. So profit margin goes into that selling price, operating cost of, you know, making the cement goes into that selling price. And then capital cost goes into that selling price, so the cost of building the cement plant. Now there's some caveats there, right? So operating costs for a typical cement plant are, you know, somewhere between, say in, in a high income country, somewhere between 30 and $50 a ton. And then capital costs are, you know, in that same range, somewhere between 30 and $50 a ton. So let's say between 60 and $100 a ton is the production of the cement. Now, most cement plants were built a long time ago. So their capital cost is fully amortized and therefore the, you know, you don't really count the capital costs. So, right. They're just, it's just OPEX. So it's maybe 30 to $50 a ton for production. So what do I mean when I say cheaper? Well, the first thing, you know, the first order thing that I mean when I say cheaper is if you're a bank and you want to build us and you want to build a cement plant, you could build a cement plant in the future. You'll be able to build a cement plant one of two ways via the conventional way, the dry process or via the brimstone process. And you're going to calculate what the internal rate of return on building that plant is, and you're going to include the capital costs and the operating costs that you project over the lifetime of that plant. And you're going to figure out, and you're going to be more excited to build the one that has the higher IRR. So our, you know, our plants will have a higher IRR than, than a conventional cement plant. So in early days, we will need to have a very high IRR in order to convince a bank to finance a plant that, you know, is, is with a new risky process. And, you know, in the future, uh, in the distant future, we will not be a risky process anymore and we will not need such a high IRR. So when I say um, cheaper to produce, I mean that for the value that you can sell, right, you're going to make make less. So the shed where we are today, we're at billions of dollars a ton, not so good. We hope that, you know, or we model that the value we produce from this fly ash plus the Portland cement will be low well, well for this for the same discount rate right we will have a lower opex relative to that value so the difference between the opex and value will be lower right so the opex today is 33 dollars and it sells for about 120 dollars you know i'm sure everyone on this podcast can do that math that's that's helpful background so thinking back to kind of the macro building uh or infrastructure landscape and then diving into concrete uh, and cement specifically where and I've alluded to a little bit, but where will brimstone fit in there? You will essentially be a new cement manufacturer that will then sell to 
concrete manufacturers and then distributors? Do you have plans to eventually also be vertically integrated? And then a third question to that, how do you intend on selling your cement to uh, the concrete industry? Is it primarily through that lower cost element or are you saying it's lower cost and carbon negative? Um, do they care about one more than the other? And I assume it's, it's lower cost, but yeah, all, all three of those questions at once. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll start with the last one. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone cares about carbon. You know, I think, you know, I'm being a little facetious when I say that, because obviously everyone on this podcast cares about carbon, but typically we don't care enough about carbon to change our behavior. You know, like, for example, you know, if we really cared about carbon, we could all, you know, not drive cars or take planes or live in houses, but you know. And, and or or we could you know pay premiums on all those things to sequester the carbon or whatever and mostly we don't and if we do we're probably very rich and it doesn't really affect us so yeah I think that people generally care about cost and I think that that's fair because I think that you know people all over the world deserve to live the same types of lives that you know we all live or the three of us I assume live live in the United States you know that sort of thing so they should you know they deserve to be able to buy you know the things necessary like cement to live those lives that's you know I think that's fundamental. So how, okay. So how are we going to enter the market given that, you know, we're folks don't really care about carbon unless it's lower cost. So first of all, we're going to try to be lower cost <laughs> and that's necessary. And if we're not lower cost, you know, go, go, find, uh, I'm going to go find a new job and because I, I think it just won't be very effective. And then in terms of, you know, how we're going to interact with the incumbents, the incumbents are huge and they control the market. So I think that it would be pretty silly to um, try to become our own cement company, we would just get, you know, destroyed. At the same time, we want to make sure that, that we actually de decarbonize cement. You know, we're not just, you know, purchased by a big cement company and then no one ever hears of us again, or we're very slowly rolled out or, you know, whatever it is. Our intention is to fully de-risk our process by building a full-size cement plant and have an off-take agreement with a concrete company. And we don't particularly care if that concrete company is owned by a big cement plant. That seems just fine for us. And then from there, we'll license the technology to every cement company everywhere. And they can all start making cement via our process, which will hopefully save those companies a lot of money. And that's, we'll incentivize them to do it quickly. And, you know, we'll be able to maintain the rights so we can keep licensing it to multiple other companies if the companies we're working with don't show the, the haste that we think is required. So yeah, we basically see because the market's so consolidated, it's probably foolish to, to try to enter as a, as a cement company. One quick follow-up, and this is something you've mentioned about, you know, having a global reach with the cement. And this is something that we've seen recently in a very different playing field with vaccines and those getting rolled out and different countries being able to pay different price points for that innovative information. Have you guys thought at all about how you plan on getting this technology to developing countries that maybe don't have the same price capacity to focus on carbon solutions versus places like the U.S. and, and more developed, you know, cement and carbon economies? Yeah. So if, if it's a lower cost way to make cement, then there won't be a price premium in, um, other countries, but they're so we'll have, we'll have the same problem that everybody else does, which is investment dollars, right? So we still need a bank to give us the money to build a plant if we're in a you know low income country, 
And low-income markets are seen as riskier. So, you know, banks are less or a bit more hesitant to, you know, do that. <laughs> and so, so I'm not sure that's something that, you know, the finance world is going to have to, you know, and with our help going to have to figure out, you know, how can we get investment dollars to low-income countries and to help, help them develop and, you know, get our technology out there. But if it's, you know, if it's a lower cost way to make the product, then I think that it should be a more attractive thing for low-income markets. There also is the reality that China makes like 50% of the cement in the world and India and other, you know, rapidly developing countries, Brazil, things like that, you know, probably very quickly start making a lot of cement as well. And some of these, some of these places have a reputation for not, sort of not, not respecting international intellectual property uh, laws. So that could be a challenge as we, as we scale. And I think that we're going to have to weigh the sort of cost benefit, you know, the goal is decarbonization. How can we make sure that we work for these countries that, you know, make a lot of cement, but maybe don't have such good IP protection in a way that's in a way that meets that goal. And I think that we will see how we do that. On the topic of scaling in April, you announced a $55 million series A co-led by Breakthrough and DCVC, uh, which is very exciting. Congratulations to that. Could you walk our listeners through how you approached the fundraising process and what attracted you most and maybe the other way around as well? What attracted Breakthrough and DCVC to Brimstone? Yeah. So first of all, very enthusiastic about our fundraising round. I think it's going to give us a lot of opportunity. And there's several other investors that I, you know, the Collaborative Fund, Amazon, Climate Pledge, Fifth Wall, just, you know, and, and, and many more that we're, you know, really excited to, to have as investors. We have, a, you know, both a real estate, clean tech, you know, conventional, economic focused investors all coming to the table. And I think it gives us a lot of credibility to say, hey, this technology seems to have a truly attractive economics. This technology has a really attractive um, clean tech story. And we have some folks like Fifth Wall and Amazon that, you know, <laughs> want to, you know, actually have the built environment behind them and, and, and you know, potentially would put our product into their installments. What attracted them to us? So um, I can, best thing to do would it be to ask them, but I'll, I'll do my best at conveying what has been conveyed to me is, you know, basically there's, you know, there's decarbonization goals and there's economics and, and, you know, those are the key things, you know, how we, we look at the problem from a very practical sense. We say, okay, someone's got to pay for this thing. Therefore it has to be a lower cost process to make the thing in order for it to be globally scaled. And I think that's a pretty attractive story for a lot of investors. It's a, you know, cement's a trillion dollar market. It's, you know, so it's definitely a venture scale market and there's, you know, potential for a lot of upside if we're able to, you know, do what we need to do. And with their initial seed funding, also from DCVC and Breakthrough, we were able to, you know, show that the science works, show that we can make that, you know, billion dollar a ton cement. And, you know, that, that reduced a lot of risk because, you know, you're able to model the, you know, the capex of the plant with reasonable accuracy and that sort of thing. So we, um, yeah, I think is, you know, the risk profile was relatively low, certainly, certainly not zero, far from zero, you know, we're a series A company, but because we, you know, taken down the full scientific risk was relatively low. That's awesome. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of capital flow into the climate tech, deep tech renewables space. Was there anything else that really stood out to you when you were differentiating them from all the capital in the market right now? Yeah, 
There was. So I, I really like working with investors who are committed to the climate problem, right? So there's, you know, I, I, I really like to solve problems and there's lots of investors out there that, you know, don't even care about ESG or the climate problem. And, you know, they want to solve the problem of making an incredibly wealthy fund even more wealthy, which does not feel like a problem to me. It just doesn't feel interesting to me. Um, there's lots of things that could do that. So I want to work with investors that are aligned with me. I'm trying to say like, hey, we're not going to, you know, pivot this business into an oil and gas services business. <laughs> we are going to, in order to, in order to make money quickly, we're here to solve the problem. And I was really heartened to see, you know, a lot of what, what I would say, folks that are sort of conventionally, purely economically minded, you know, show, you know, when I said that, say, you know, show real enthusiasm, but you know, some didn't, and, and that was a flag for me. To close off this episode, one thing we, we always like to ask our guests is any piece of advice they have for specific to this podcast, MBA graduates, but graduates specifically that are looking to enter the climate tech space, either as entrepreneurs or as investors or operators, any kind of role. You, as you mentioned in the beginning, moved around a little bit throughout your academic career, uh, identifying the problem you really wanted to focus your attention on. Is there anything from that process or since founding Brimstone that you would say is one key piece of advice you would give people? Yeah. So this is some advice uh, that was given to me by a professor in college. It's actually a, an external research experience that I was doing with how, how he phrased it was, you know, drown your favorite puppies, which basically just meant, you know, you're going to have ideas that you love because you love the science or you love the story or you love the feel, but that's dangerous <laughs> because you're, you know, you are inclined to blaze over the, the bad stuff on your favorite puppies. So work as hard as you can to evaluate these things as rigorously as possible. And don't be afraid to, you know, give up on something that even if it's something you really liked, like, you know, for, I did that at least three times, you know, with wastewater treatment and then water electrolysis and then another, another electrochemical thing that I haven't talked about. So I won't confuse people. And it's, so yeah, I, 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 I would look at things rigorously and remember that we're in a physical world that has to abide by the laws of physics. So, you know, use, use a physical approach and then use your best economics and say, Hey, do I really believe there's going to be a hundred dollar a ton carbon tax? No. Well, maybe you do. Why? <laughs> you know, or do I really believe that there's going to be a hundred dollar a ton price on carbon? Well, you know, we all share one atmosphere. So there only has to be one of those in one place. So maybe, so this. Or, or, or do I really think that electricity is going to be a cent a kilowatt hour and 24 hours a day? And that's, you know, that's what heat is. And, you know, that and lower is what heat is today. So maybe you do. Um, but why, you know, is it just because you, you know, read somewhere that there's a graph that is projected out 50 years and that's what it is. So anyway, that, that advice, drown your favorite puppies. <laughs> well, with that, um, uplifting, although interesting worded piece of advice. We want to thank you, Cody, for being on. We really appreciated you taking the time. And if there's anything you wanted to plug with our listeners, such as a website or, you know, a Twitter, definitely feel free. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. This has been great. The, so the website is www.brimstone.energy and we're hiring a lot right now because of this aforementioned fundraise and, you know, Lots of, lots of different kinds of roles, including business development roles. So please go to the website and 
check out our We're Hiring page and apply if you're interested. Awesome. Thanks, Cody. It was great to have you on. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. I also want to thank the Wharton Energy Club for allowing me to do this, as well as our fantastic guests over the past two years. I'll miss hosting this podcast, but I know that it's in good hands with Ellie and the team. Stay tuned for their new episodes after the summer, and connect with me and everyone else on LinkedIn or the Wharton Current's Twitter and Instagram pages. See you soon.